Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Today we are going to look at a, a hot topic uh, for these recipients of this letter. They were struggling with an area of theology in the area of angels. And they were taking the, the theology of angels and they had upgraded it to a position that was in competition with Jesus. And uh, that obviously is challenged because nothing competes or should compete with Jesus, should it? Now, let me just uh, bring this for us. We may not, may not be dealing with the worship of angels today here, right? But what is it in your life that you're struggling with? What is it that's in competition with Jesus? That's the question I want you to think about as we work through this. In your life, what is it that is in competition with Jesus? Just think about that for a second before we go on ahead, right? The angels for these early Jewish Christians were significant. They're significant in our culture. In fact, we have a lot of TV shows and, and movies and books about angels, right? Bestsellers sometimes. But for these early Jewish Christian angels were just, were just these powerful beings that they had, they had seen throughout the Old Testament. There are 108 direct stories about angels in the Old Testament. And these angels were powerful heavenly beings. They were created beings. They were the best that God had created. And so it doesn't take a, a big stretch in our minds to realize that they went from heaven's best to worshiping these angels. It is said that the, the Jewish Christians had a, had a, had a uh, the Jewish people had an angel for everything. Just like the Egyptians had a God for everything, the Jewish people had an angel for everything. There were angel of the sea and an uh, and, and, and angel of the stars, an angel of all the natural things going on. One rabbi said that every gr blade of grass had its own angel. And so you can see that they were a big part of the Jewish culture. I mean, think about angels in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah, how the angels went in and destroyed. Isaiah chapter 6, where you have the seraphim uh, circling around God in Isaiah's vision. And with two, they have six wings, and with two wings they're flying, and two wings they cover their face, and two wings they cover their feet. And, and they're saying back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. That was embedded in the Jewish mind. The, the, the Jewish mind also knew that, that God had angel armies. There's a great story. I won't take time to read it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 5. David has just been anointed king. He's getting ready to go against the Philistines. And he says, Am I going, should I go against the Philistines? And God says, don't go until you hear the rustling in the top of the trees. What was that? The angel army. And he sends the angel army ahead to defeat the Philistines, David just has to come and wipe things up. So that was what the Jewish mind had. The angels were significant. In fact, in the church, there were, there was a, there was, there were heresies going on regarding the Jews. Paul addressed this in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Paul said, let no one disqualify you. Don't let people disqualify you. Don't let them get you off track insisting on asceticism, beating yourself up for the gospel. Jesus has completed everything. And the worship of angels. Stop doing that. So it seems like we have the same type of issue going on here in the book of 
Hebrews. And so with the theme of the book, the supremacy of Christ, Jesus is greater than, one of the things the writer has to deal with is this worship of angels. So he's going to tell us four things, four ways in which Jesus is greater than the angels. So let's go through these as we get ready for communion. First of all, Jesus is superior to the angels because his name is greater than the angels. Now, when you think of the name of Jesus, we're not talking about J-E-S-U-S, just the name. But when you hear the name of someone, what do you think about? Think about the whole person, right? You think about the essence of that person. So the essence of Jesus, the name of Jesus is superior to the angels. Look at verse 4. The writer says, Jesus, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. And then he says this, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now it is true, in the Old Testament, the angels were sometimes called the sons of God, but never singular. Jesus is the only son of God. Or again, the end of verse 5, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. By the way, circle the word son uh, in, in, in your Bibles there. That's a New Testament term. In the New Testament, Jesus becomes a son. That is the incarnational term. It is Jesus who now is the son of God. We saw last time we met the seven excellencies of Jesus. Remember, he was the creator of the world. In verses 1 through 3, he's the heir of all things. He, he is uh, the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe. He is the conductor of all the universe, all the physical aspects of the universe. After making purification for sin, he made purification for our sin, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. His seven excellencies. It's only Jesus who is Excellent is only Jesus who is superior, and it's only Jesus who can make purification for our sin. Remember last time we said purification was that theological word we use, atonement. Atonement means to make amends for. And every time you hear the word atonement, you've got to think of two things. One, you have to think of substitution. We can't make amends for our own sin. So if our sins are going to be amended, someone has to do that for us, right? It's only Jesus. Secondly, not only substitution, but satisfaction. We cannot satisfy God's wrath on sin. We can't do that. So if someone's going to satisfy it, it has to be Jesus. Fully man, fully God. Being fully God, he didn't have to die for his, his sins. He died as our substitute. Being man, he can die for our, as our substitute. Jesus made purification for sin, and he sat down at the right hand of God. That's why his name is more powerful, is superior to the angels. The angels did not come to redeem man. Only Jesus did that. That's why his name is greater than. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, men and angels, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His name, his essence is greater than. Secondly, his position is greater than the angels. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. 
don't worship the angels, the writer's saying. The angels worship Jesus. Worship the one the angels worship. Or, or uh, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God. God calling the Son, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the, the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's talking about the second coming, that Jesus is, is coming again, and he's going to have in his hand the scepter, the ruler of righteousness. And he's going to come and establish his kingdom. Now, the, the readers of Hebrews would not have known the verse we're going to look at now, but later on in Revelation, we see the, the confirmation of what the writer is saying here regarding the position of Jesus and his uh, second coming and what he's going to do during that time and the angels regarding that. Revelation chapter 5, 11 through 13. John says, Then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. Th that's just John's way of saying I couldn't count them all. The number is beyond count. Verse 12. And here's what they were doing. They were saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the angels were, to receive honor, power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. The angels are saying that. They are worshiping Jesus. Next verse. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All the angels are worshiping Jesus. There's a passage in, at the end of uh, Revelation I want to read to you real quick. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. So John now is at the end of his book. An angel has given him the vision and, I mean, just think about it. I mean, if an angel came right now in here, there would be such splendor, the, be, the, the best creation of heaven. Such splendor, such brilliance. We would be taken back by that. And we would do what John did in chapter 22, verse 8 of Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. I couldn't help but do that. But notice what the angel says. You, you must not do that. Get up. I'm a fellow servant with you and brothers and prophets with those who keeps the word of this book. Worship God. Don't worship angels. Don't worship me. Worship God. Jesus' position is greater than the angels. Now I want to go back. Maybe it's not angels you're dealing with today. The worship of angels, but what is it that's in competition with Jesus? What is it that's in competition with Jesus? A relationship? A job? Money? Possessions? What's in competition with Jesus? One word I want to look at here real quick, this word in verse uh, 6, firstborn. And again, when he says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, I want us to look at that because this is a word that many people don't understand and it moves them into heresy. Jehovah Witnesses being one. 
and uh, Mormons being another. And they take that word firstborn to mean that Jesus was born, that God created him, right? That, that he is not God, big G, but he is a God, little g. That's not what that word means. When you read firstborn, when it's in reference to Jesus, it is not talking about time. It's talking about position. All right? It's not talking about time. It's talking about position. When you see it in reference to Jesus, it is talking about the chief one, the principal one, not time, but position. Let me show you how that works in another passage. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, Colossians 1.18. Let's look at that on the screen. Here we go. And Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, right? The firstborn, there's a Greek word, from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. Okay, so you say, let's think about that. Um, was Jesus in time the firstborn from the dead? Wouldn't Lazarus be before him? He was raised from the dead, right? What about uh, the, the son of the widow in Nain? The widow's son, remember, remember him? He was raised from the dead. And, and then when Jesus was crucified, all the, uh, many of the saints were raised from the dead. So if you're talking about time, Jesus was not the firstborn from the dead. But we're not talking about time. We're talking about position. Jesus is the chief one who was raised. Jesus is the principal one who was raised. In fact, Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then no one else is. So we have to make sure that we understand that Jesus here is principal. His position is principal. And this word firstborn is not to be taken out of context and mean that Jesus was, was created. We know that he wasn't. He's fully God. His position is, is greater than. His name is greater than. Position, number three. His person is greater than. Look at, verses, look at verse 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, in the beginning, and heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the what? You're the same. And your years will have no end. Now the writer makes it clear here that Jesus is the eternal Creator. He laid the foundations of the earth. The heaven are made by the work of His hand. Everything else perishes, He remains the same. Everything changes, He remains the same. His life has no end. And I love the way the writer says it. He says, Lord, you created the heavens and earth, but one day they're going to wear out. And so you're going to take them like a, like a garment, like a garment that wears out, and you're going to roll it up, and you're going to put it away, and then you're going to bring the new heavens and new earth, just like, just like we would take an old garment that's worn out, right? Can't wear it anymore. It's out of style. It's torn in. It, it has holes in it. And we roll it up, and we put it away, and we replace it with something else. That's the picture here. Jesus is going to take this earth that's wearing out. He's going to roll it up, and we have the new heavens and the new earth. And he can do that because of who he is. And the writer here tells us two attributes, actually three, another one's kind of inherent in one, two attributes of God here. You are the same. That attribute is that Jesus is immutable. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, 
today and forever. Aren't you glad Jesus is the same? Because if he's not, if he's not, then all the promises he gives us are up for grabs. If Jesus can change, then tomorrow morning you may not be his child. This afternoon you may not be his child. If he can change his mind, then he might change his mind about us. Aren't you glad that he never changes? Now, inherent in the fact that he can't change and doesn't change is another attribute of his, his omniscience. He knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know. So I make a decision today, right? And then this afternoon, I learn something new, so I have to go back and change my decision. My decision changes based on something I learned or something I realized or something someone told me. But God is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient. He already knows everything. No one can tell him anything new. And so the decisions he makes don't change because nothing, no new information can come that would cause those decisions to be changed. So he's immutable. He is omniscient. And then your years will never end. He's eternal. Never been a time when he wasn't. Never been a time when he won't be. He is eternal. That's significant for us as well. You ever had a boss who said, you know what, man, I'm tagging you. You're going to be the up-and-comer in this company. One of these days, I'm going to take you through training, and one of these days, you're going to have my position. You are it. Tag, you are it. And then you're in that for five years or so, and then what happens? Your boss gets fired or leaves or dies. And then that track you were on, it's up for grabs. See, people change because they're not eternal, but not Jesus. The promises he gives us today are the promises that will never change and that he can carry out through eternity. His person is greater than anything else. So let me go back to that question. Is there anything else in competition with Jesus? It may not be the angels. That's the point of this passage. But is there anything in your life in competition with Jesus? One more. So Jesus' name is greater than. His position is greater than. His person is greater than. His authority is greater than. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Now remember, the writer is arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels. So he says, to which of the angels did he ever say, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer, of course, is no one. In fact, God never told the angels to sit down. Angels don't sit down. Angels are ministering spirits, we're going to see in a second. They are always around God. Those angels with two wings flying in Isaiah's vision, they were not sitting. They are waiting. They are, they are worshiping God, and they are waiting for God to send them out on a mission. In fact, that's what angel means. Angelos means messenger. That's who they are. They're to be sent out on God, by God, for a mission. But to his son, he said, set down. Your work is complete. You can add nothing 
to the work that you did for me on the cross. And I want you to, us to hear that. We can add nothing to the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, by our, some of your tra- uh, traditions, you may try that, right? Yeah, it's Jesus plus communion. It's Jesus plus confirmation. It's Jesus, yeah, I get that, plus my good works. This verse says, no. You can't add anything to what Jesus has already done. That's why it's a gift of grace. Full, prepared, ready for you. All you need to do is accept it and live in the freedom that Jesus gives you by the work he's already done. Have you trusted in him alone? That's why we always say, have you trusted in Jesus alone as the only way you can have a relationship with him? Because you you trusted in Jesus plus your church tradition or Jesus plus your good works, you're not trusting in Jesus alone. You have a different gospel going on. Have you trusted in Jesus alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? And to drive this point home, the writer does one more thing in verse 14. Jesus' name, his position, his person, his authority is greater than. And by the way, readers, don't you know what angels are? Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to what? They're to serve you. They're not to be worshipped by you. They were created to serve you for the sake of those who inherit salvation. That's us. That's what the writer's saying. You are worshiping something that was meant to serve you. That's something to think about, isn't it? Are you worshiping something that was meant to serve you? Was money made to be worshiped? Or to serve us. It makes a bad Lord, doesn't it? But a great servant, we can do tremendous things for. We can do things like special needs ministry. What in your life is in competition with Jesus? Isn't it amazing that the things that were meant to serve us often become the God we bow before? And while the writer is specifically talking here about angel worship, the broader principle is what is in competition with Jesus in your life? What is in competition with Jesus in your life? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let me read these before we take communion. But we see him who for a little while, not for long, but for who a little while was made lower than the angels. When was that? When he walked on earth and went to the cross. For a little while. Now he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what we think about when we take communion. Jesus tasted death 
for you. Jesus went through death for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus, remember the atonement? He died as your substitute. He bore your sins in his body on the cross, and he died as a satisfaction for God's wrath as God poured out his wrath on sin on Jesus to the point Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was when Jesus was tasting death itself. And Jesus himself says, take communion to remember what I've done for you. Not, not flippantly. Not something you do once a month. Not something you do at the end of the service. Remember me. Remember that I tasted death just for you. Remember the sacrifice that I gave just for you. That's what we want to do during the next few minutes here. Many of you remember uh, Rick Buter, who was our worship pastor here, one of our worship pastors here for uh, several years, and now he's in Florida. His dad, Ed, also uh, was a musician and played for us many times, played bass, uh, guitar up here, and other instruments, played here, played in Robinson Campus, played on Saturday nights a lot for us. And about uh, five months ago, right out there in the lobby, Ed said, you know, I'm going to take a test tomorrow having some issues to take a test and uh, found out uh, uh, he was sick and uh, he passed away last week, five months. Uh, so I went to see him in the hospital. Uh, he had been told, you got two days to a week. And so we had a great conversation. Be sure to pray for the Buter family. We read scripture and we were leaving and, and uh, Ed said, uh, I'm going to make a path for Jesus for you guys. I'm going to make the path to Jesus. Now, he didn't mean he was making the path to Jesus. He said he was going before us. And so we gathered back around his bed after he said that and said, you know what? We're not too far behind you. We're not too far behind. Ed, Ed, Ed could, could be in that bed knowing he had two days to a week left with confidence because of what Jesus did for him. And nothing could be added to that completed work. Do you have that same confidence? Because I got to tell you, we're not too far behind. Do you know for certain that if you closed your eyes in death right now, you would wake up and see the Father. That you would, as Jesus says, that you would pass from death to life. You see, you can know that with just as certain as Ed did. You can know that because of what Jesus did for you. Do you know that? If you're a believer, now you get to celebrate that. You get to remember what Jesus did. So as we take the bread and the cup in these next few minutes, don't do so flippantly. There are going to be passages on the screen to read. Bow your head and focus on Jesus. Don't get distracted by what you've got going on this afternoon or this week. This is a time to remember, Jesus, I thank you for tasting death for me.
Open my heart. Speak to me. How do you want me to hear from you? And ask this question. Ask this to Jesus. Jesus, is there anything in my life in competition with you? And if there is, I want to deal with it. Greg DeVore, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us in communion. Let me just pray before Greg comes. Father, work on our hearts. We get so distracted. We'll get distracted by every noise in this room. We'll get distracted by every thought in our mind. But Father, help us for these next few minutes. Focus on Jesus as we hold the bread and the cup and then take it together. I pray, Father, that you will do your work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.